What you're about to hear was originally posted as a bonus episode on Patreon.com. However, I've recently suspended the Chicago Corruption Walking Tours Patreon campaign because, to be frank, it seemed borderline evil asking people for money during COVID-19. I'm doing fine. I will be posting previously Patreon-only content all week, and after this, all the bonus episodes, all the bonus materials will either be posted on the podcast or on our Twitter account. This episode ties in with episode one of the podcast, Blood, Ballots, and Blackjack's Ears, and it delves into the weird, torturous, and surprising story of black police officers in America during the 1800s. If this inspires you so much, you do want to spend some money on it. Don't take that money to Patreon. Take it to either chicagoservicerelief.com. It's a collection of GoFundMe and crowdsourcing campaigns for local food service, bar, restaurant, and other industry workers. Or take it to the Chicago Community COVID-19 Response Fund, which is a joint project of the City of Chicago, the United Way of Metro Chicago, and the Chicago Community Trust. Easiest way to find that is through the United Way's website, liveunitedchicago.org. Your attention, please. Who watches The Watchmen? Or to be precise, who watched Watchmen, the HBO TV show with the superheroes? If you did, you saw a historical real hero you might not have known it. Samuel Battle, the police lieutenant who swore hooded justice into the NYPD and told him to beware the Cyclops, was real. The child of former slaves and, born at 16 pounds, the biggest baby then recorded in North Carolina's history, when Battle was a teenager, he was caught stealing from his boss, R.H. Smith. Smith didn't press charges because he was friends with Battle's father, a Methodist minister, but he angrily told the teenager that he'd wind up in prison within a year. As Battle later recalled, I said, from this day on, I shall always be honest and honorable, and I'm going to make Mr. Smith out a liar. Battle became the first black officer of the New York Police Department in 1911, after coming in 199th out of 638 applicants on the civil service test. Police doctors tried to block the hire by claiming Battle had a heart murmur, but under pressure from prominent black community leaders, the department retested him. No surprise, there was no heart murmur. His new co-workers gave him the silent treatment for a full year. A note with a racial slur and a hole the size of a bullet was left on his bunk. He never reported the mistreatment, but he would tell white officers who had a problem with him to meet him in the cellar and take it out on my black behind. Samuel Battle was six foot three and 285 pounds. None of New York's finest ever took him up in the offer. There had been black police officers in Brooklyn since Wiley Overton in 1891, including Battle's brother-in-law, Moses Cobbs, but they were all hired when Brooklyn was a separate city. This made Battle what consolidated New York City's first black cop in 1911, its first black sergeant in 1926, its first black lieutenant in 1935, and its first black parole commissioner in 1941. He fought for racial integration, charged into 1912 race riots as the only officer, in his words, whipping whiteheads. He once single-handedly preempted a brewing race riot in 1935 by tracking down the teenager who had supposedly been killed and having him pose smiling for a photograph. He was a legend. And I would love to stop the story here with a look at an honest and honorable hero and say that's what it meant to be a policeman. But I can't. The history of black police officers in America, like the history of police officers and of America, is ugly and polluted. 
The first black officers in America weren't in the North, but in the South, members of the New Orleans City Guard. We don't know when the Guard started hiring free men of color, but they were already there when the Louisiana Purchase made New Orleans part of the U.S. in 1803. This is not a good story. One of the City Guard's primary duties was catching runaway slaves. But despite free men of color serving on the City Guard, on the various New Orleans police forces that followed the City Guard, and in two militias that helped quash the German Coast slave uprising of 1811, these free men soon found that no matter how much they helped white people, white people would not help them. In 1822, the New Orleans Council told the city labor manager not to hire any more black people for any city jobs at all. By 1830, the New Orleans police force was entirely white again. America's next black officers were either in Washington, D.C. in 1861 or back in New Orleans in 1867. Sources vary. D.C. did have early black police officers and, fun fact, when President Ulysses S. Grant was arrested in 1872 for recklessly driving a team of horses through D.C., the arresting officer was black, a former slave and Civil War veteran named William West. West and Grant reportedly became pals after the arrest, with the president sometimes stopping to chat about horses when he'd see West out on his rounds. The story of black police in New Orleans is not as cute. In 1866, a group of Democrats, including firefighters and cops, attacked a mostly black group of Republicans outside the hall where the Louisiana Constitutional Convention was meeting. 48 Republicans were killed in the New Orleans Massacre of 1866. 44 of them were black. There was also a similar massacre that year in Memphis, in addition to the ongoing harassment and persecution of Southern African Americans by police, both in their official capacities and after hours, when many officers would join with other white Southerners to don the homemade uniforms of the first Ku Klux Klan. After the New Orleans massacre, the military governor of Louisiana ordered New Orleans mayor to reorganize the police force and fill half the jobs with former Union soldiers. Still, no African-American police. Under pressure from the New Orleans Tribune, the nation's first African-American daily newspaper, the military governor in 1867 appointed freed slave Charles Cursell to the police board. Within three days, the board had appointed African-American officers Desiou Picot and Emile Farrar to the New Orleans police. More than a dozen black officers were appointed in the month that followed. White officers repeatedly threatened to revolt. The mayor of New Orleans would assign black officers to enforce segregation laws at local events. Other black officers would simply refuse to enforce segregation on streetcars. September 1868, the state legislature put New Orleans police under state control, turning it from a city police force to a metropolitan police force in charge of Jefferson, Orleans, and St. Bernard parishes. The legislature set up a five-member police board to handle hiring. Three members of the board were black. They started hiring black officers in droves, 170 of them. Soon the force was 65% black, triggering violent white riots across the new police force's territory. To stop the violence in November 1868, the superintendent fired every single black officer and called in the military. By the way, if anyone out there wants to start a New Orleans corruption walking tour, you'd have material for days. Just putting that out there. Once the army stopped the violence, the parishes were forced to accept the Metropolitan Police Force's authority. Black officers were hired again, but not in the same numbers. By 1870, only 28% of the force was black. By the early 1870s, there were black police officers in Montgomery, Mobile, Selma, Vicksburg, Meridian, Clinton, Jackson, Jacksonville, Charleston, Chattanooga, Raleigh, Austin, Houston, Galveston, and an unknown number of small towns in between. Like in New Orleans, these hires were all top-down directives from Reconstruction forces. But then came politics, and the presidential election of 1876. It had been a nasty race, with both 
parties, trying every dirty trick in the book. Northern elections tended towards bribery and repeat voting, and Southern ones leaned on violence and voter intimidation. Both sides juiced results. The Potter Commission that Democrats later convened to look into election fraud during the race backfired on them, finding that the losing Democrats had been as dirty as the victorious Republicans. But people knew something was up. South Carolina reported 101% voter turnout. In the race, Democrat Samuel Tilden won the popular vote and got 19 more electoral college votes than Republican Rutherford B. Hayes. But four states, Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Oregon, were still contested. Combined, they had 20 electoral college votes, the exact number Hayes needed to win. Congress created a special election commission to look into the contested votes, one by one finding Hayes won all four states. Democrats called foul and threatened filibusters to drag out the affair. Someone shot at Rutherford Hayes' house while the family sat down for dinner. So as the inauguration drew near, the sides met at Wormley's Hotel in Washington, D.C. to see what it would take to get Southern Democrats to withdraw opposition and accept the Election Commission's results. We don't know what the parties talked about. No one else was in the room where it happened, uh, for Hamilton fans out there. But when the Wormley conference ended two days before Inauguration Day, Rutherford B. Hayes, a celebrated Civil War brevet major general and staunch abolitionist who had defended runaway slaves as a lawyer, would become the man who abandoned Reconstruction, pulling out Northern troops and leaving Black Southerners at the mercy of the former Confederacy, Redeemer Democrats, and the Ku Klux Klan. History books called The Corrupt Bargain of 1877. To be fair to Hayes, he did support removing the military from the South even before the deal at Wormley's Hotel, if he could guarantee the South's Black population and their voting rights would be protected. Instead, after whatever deal was struck in Wormley's Hotel, Hayes just yanked the bulk of the army out, told those remaining not to interfere with Southern elections at all, even to protect Black voting rights. Adding insult to injury, the D.C. hotel where the corrupt bargain was made was owned by James Wormley, a freeborn Black man. A D.C. corruption walking tour wouldn't be a bad idea either. Reconstruction ended, and with local issues back under local control, the South started new and inspired forms of racial suppression. Hayes started spreading patronage jobs to Southern Democrats to buy support for civil rights reform, but it turns out the South was more racist than greedy. Poll taxes, too steep for black voters to pay, popped up across Southern states in 1877, some of which wouldn't be repealed until the 1960s. The year Alabama's poll tax started, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake debuted the Bolshoi. The year Alabama's poll tax ended, David Bowie released Do Anything You Say. Southern cities started purging their police forces of Reconstruction-era black officers. By the 1890s, most Southern police forces were again lily white, staying that way until the 1940s. So that's the South. What about the North? The North didn't see a black police officer until 1871, actually in Chicago. Like in the South, Northern black officers were appointed only to police black neighborhoods. Some cities built in rules that didn't allow their black officers to arrest white people. In Chicago, black police in the 1800s were always plainclothes officers, so as not to rouse white anger. But otherwise, it was a peaceful introduction, at least compared to a lot of northern cities. When the first 35 black police officers in Philadelphia hit the streets in 1884, whites physically attacked them. The Cleveland police force in 1889 refused to appoint three black applicants 
despite the fact that they scored higher on the civil service exam than 40 of the 50 whites who were appointed. White cops threatened to strike when the first black officers were appointed in Detroit in 1886, St. Louis in 1901, and Brooklyn in 1891. Chicago's first black cop, and possibly the first African-American police officer in the North, was James L. Shelton in 1871, a political appointment under Republican Mayor Joseph Medill. Okay, technically Medill wasn't a Republican, but he was elected as a member of the short-lived Fireproof Reform Party. He and a group of fellow dry Republicans, dry meaning they were against liquor, created the party after the Great Chicago Fire, winning on a platform of banning wooden construction. But Medill was totally a Republican, and the paper he ran before he went into politics, the Chicago Tribune, yes, the current one, was basically a mouthpiece for the Republicans and for Abe Lincoln. Renaming your party Fireproof is pretty electable after a fire. Also, the idea of a fireproof party crusading against wood isn't as adorable as it sounds. Poor immigrants lived in wooden houses, while the rich fireproofers lived in stone mansions. The Fireproof Party lost big in 1873 after trying to enforce a law that had been on the books for a long time but everyone ignored, keeping bars closed on Sunday. A faction of Northside Republicans formed a new pro-liquor People's Party and won again. Harvey Colvin, the guy from the main episode who had the police barricade City Hall to keep out the other guy claiming to be mayor, was a People's Party candidate. Whether calling themselves Republican, Fireproof, or People's Party, they were the party that had the black vote. African Americans were fiercely loyal to the Republicans from Reconstruction till 1936, when more than 70% of black voters went for FDR over the GOP's Alf Landon. As the black-focused Chicago Defender newspaper wrote in 1976, since President Franklin and the New Deal, being black and Republican was about as compatible as being black and aspiring to leadership in the Ku Klux Klan. By 1880, Chicago had five black police officers, and by 1894, 23. These were all patronage jobs, jobs doled out as political favors, because that's what all police jobs were at the time, white or black. Hirings, firings, promotions all political decisions with the mayor or police board's political party setting the marching orders. When a Republican, Fireproof, or People's Party mayor would appoint black officers, the goals were to court black votes and to reward people connected to the black political machine. It was tokenism, but it was also a pretty good job. Cops in Chicago got paid more than blue-collar workers and, since 1861, couldn't be fired without cause. There was little watching of The Watchmen, even on HBO, so as the famous 1904 investigation found, a lot of Chicago cops simply spent their patrol shifts lounging around town, hanging out at saloons, frequenting brothels, or just not showing up for work. This was a national problem, by the way. Teddy Roosevelt made his name as New York City's police commissioner by walking the streets after midnight to personally accost drunken on-duty cops. In 1895, Chicago tried to end crony hires by putting a civil service exam in place, setting physical and mental requirements for city jobs. The next year, the number of black cops in Chicago dropped from 23 to 16, a result either of the civil service exam eliminating unqualified officers or white leadership using the tests as an excuse to fire black people. That's the hard part of judging history. Some of these early Chicago officers were of the Samuel Battle variety, feeling a true call to serve. 
Some were more like Ike Rivers or John Fletcher from this week's main episode, using their political clout to leap from patronage job to patronage job, always on the city payroll. And we'll never know who was which. Chicago political parties looking to fill patronage jobs soon found a way around civil service tests, however. They'd make temporary appointments to fill vacancies, which bypass the civil service eligible list, and then make the temporary appointments permanent. Between 1872 and 1930, there were 260 black people appointed to the Chicago Police Department. More than half of them, 138 of the 260 to be specific, were appointed by Republican Mayor William Hale, Big Bill Thompson, in the 19-teens and 20s. These were all patronage jobs, the notoriously corrupt Big Bill used to reward party loyalty and to shore up support among black voters. All of them were hired using the temporary appointment loophole. So why did I start this bonus episode of a podcast about Chicago corruption with the story of Samuel Battle, an incorruptible New Yorker? Because Chicago, a city so notoriously racist, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, I think the people from Mississippi ought to come to Chicago to learn how to hate, had police officers of color 40 years before New York. This is a dilemma we find time and time again across America. Corruption could be better for racial and ethnic minority groups than reform was. The reformers of the era, and some would argue today, were wealthy, waspy whites. By and large, their vision of a clean government was a white one. Corruption is cheating the system. Given the era's rules, regulations, community standards, and nationally binding United States Supreme Court decisions that openly favored whites over all of the races, maybe it was a system that deserved to be cheated. I'm not offering this as an excuse for political corruption, but as an argument offered time and time again to justify shady actions. I'm a cishet white guy talking into an iPad in the basement of my charming brick bungalow. I'm talking about people who face situations and tough moral choices I would never have faced once, even if I had lived in that era. So yeah, go ahead, take the job from a crooked boss like Big Bill Thompson or Harvey Colvin. I'm not going to judge African-American patronage hires from the safety of a dozen decades in my white skin. I will, however, judge the hell out of the white political bosses who dangle patronage jobs and no real social change in front of an oppressed and hurting community, ignoring their true needs and turning their back on the people who voted them in the moment after the votes were cast. Doors closing. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the Chicago Corruption Walking Tour podcast. Sources include Black Police in America by W. Marvin Delaney, A Critical History of Police Reform by Samuel Walker, the essay The Black Police Officer, Historical Perspective by Jack Koikendall and David Burns. You can find that one online at Sage Pub. The Reminiscences of Samuel J. Battle from the Oral History Collection of Columbia University, the Encyclopedia of Chicago, also online, and the Diaries and Letters of Rutherford B. Hayes. Lots of places to find that collection online, including archive.org and Google Books. But the best source for one-stop Rutherford B. Hayes shopping is the digital collections of Hayes Presidential Library at rbhayes.org. Next week's Patreon-only bonus material goes musical, with two separate versions of the Alderman's Love Song that bought Chicago elections.